Welcome to the podcast. Today I'm going to be talking about the Netflix movie, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Now normally if I watch a movie and I'm just doing a review, I'll do a quick video on Instagram. But for this one, I needed the longer format. I needed to make this a podcast. First off, let me just say, I am a Sorkin fan. I love Aaron Sorkin. He's one of the few people in Hollywood that if I hear he's involved in a project I'm in, no questions asked. In fact, at that point, I don't really want to know anything else because I want to be as surprised as much as I can by the movie. Uh, since I'm in, at the mention of the name Sorkin, I just want to be surprised with whatever else comes. So uh, I was surprised when I found out this movie was coming out on Netflix and I found out pretty much as soon as it came out on Netflix. I didn't know that Sorkin had a project coming out. And so when I heard, hey, there's a new Sorkin movie coming on Netflix, and I'm like, oh my gosh, when? And it's like, uh, like right now, I got very excited. Uh, this was not originally supposed to be just a Netflix movie. This was not the type of movie where Netflix said, here's money, go make it. Uh, I believe it was made, it was intended for a theatrical release, but because of all the issues uh, going on with movie theaters right now, with the pandemic, like a lot of things, it transitioned then to uh, the idea of streaming and so Netflix bought it and put it on their platform. And so for anyone who has Netflix, you can now go and watch this movie. And I would recommend that you do. Uh, so I sat down not knowing much about this movie. I have to confess that from a historical aspect, I didn't really know anything about this story. So I didn't know what to expect uh, even as the movie was going on. I know that probably a lot of people who are going to watch this movie are going to know the background story and know about the events that happened. And so there's a little less to spoil there. But for me, I didn't know. And I was actually glad for that going in that I didn't have a, a preconceived notion of what I was about to see. And I'm just going to say off the top, I loved this movie. I watched it last night, finally sat down, gave myself the time to, to just clear my mind, put my phone down, didn't want any distractions, watched the movie. And I enjoyed it so much that this afternoon I watched it again. Uh, I haven't done that in a while, the within 24 hours rewatch, because there's just, I mean, in a, as typical Sorkin fashion, there's so much happening in the movie, there's so much dialogue, and the scenes are just, uh, there's just so much going on that it felt worth rewatching so immediately, um, and then once, once I'd seen the movie, once I had a context for what was going on, rewatching and appreciating a lot of the things that I missed the first time, or the stuff that, um, you know, I could just appreciate more now seeing the bigger picture. And it was equally enjoyable the second time through. Uh, I think this is an early, easy Oscar favorite. And by Oscar favorite, I mean for a lot of things. First off, uh, Sorkin's going to wrap up Best Adapted Screenplay. I mean, he's got to win for this. Um, I can't imagine anything else coming in. But also for Best Picture, there's going to be several several acting nominations. might be tough to even pick out which ones. Uh, there's just a lot of good in this movie. Sorkin might even get a directorial best director nod. This is just his second movie to direct. The first one was Molly's Game. You can also find that on Netflix. That did have a theatrical release, but now it's on Netflix, like most of his other projects, which, by the way, catch up on Sorkin projects if you haven't seen them. See Molly's Game. See The Social Network. See Moneyball. See Steve Jobs. See A Few Good Men. Uh, watch The West Wing. Watch Newsroom. Watch Sports Night. Really, anything Sorkin's done uh, is worth your while. 
But, I mean, this is a weird, weird year for Oscars anyways. You know, I say that it's an Oscar favorite, but, of course, next year's Oscars are going to be bizarre because so few movies have come out. I mean, it feels like, what, this and Tenet are about the only movies that have come out. I know a lot of movies came out before the pandemic hit, but that early part of the year is usually not the best stuff. Um, and so it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what the Oscars look like anyways. But up to this point, I would have said, man, what are the Oscars going to do? There hasn't even been quality movies to nominate. Well, this was one. And I'm sure more will come. I mean, Oscar season is generally the end of the year anyways. We're just now getting into that time. So maybe on more streaming services, more Oscar-quality movies are going to come out. But this one was fantastic and I think is going to be heavily talked about when the Oscars come around. As I said, there's great performances in it. But let's be clear about one thing. This is, this is a win for Sorkin. Sorkin killed it in this movie. Um... And that's the main thing that I'm fascinated about. The main reason I wanted to rewatch it so quickly is we all know Sorkin's known for his witty, fast-paced dialogue, his great uh, use of language, his turns of phrase. And honestly, I feel like there isn't even as much of that in this movie, although there are, there are a lot of great lines. Um, thinking of the, the Jerry Rubin press conference response, somebody asked him a question. He says, you pose that question in the form of a lie. <laughs> And that's something I feel like I'm going to use. I'm going to use that. Probably in my classroom when kids ask me stuff. You pose that question in the form of a lie. Um, but there's there other really good lines, obviously, as well. And I wonder if some of them will not uh, sort of enter the general lexicon the way some have in other movies. But it's the structure of the movie that I find particularly fascinating. And this is what I mean, not knowing the events going in, like I was just, I was captivated all the way through. And then once we were done with the movie, I was thinking back over the movie and thinking, okay, so what story did I just see get told? And I started thinking about, okay, if I were the screenwriter on this movie, or if anybody else were the screenwriter on this movie, how would this movie have played out? And what would this movie have looked like if it had just been a traditional linear story? If it had just started with, uh, if, if every scene was re-edited to be chronological, so we started with the plans to go to the convention to protest. We showed all the scenes of them at the park protesting, all the interactions with the cops, and then the second half of the movie was all courtroom showing what followed with that. It would have been all the same stuff, and yet I feel like it would have been significantly less compelling it just kind of would have been a paint-by-numbers drama. But Sorkin takes it in the way that he only... Only he seems to be able to do this so expertly, like he did in The Social Network, where he's jumping around the timelines and different scenes are informing the scenes that come after it, even though uh, they're taking place at different times and they're giving context through these um, deposition scenes. This movie is... The courtroom is giving a lot of background to what you're going to see happening in the past... And then the scenes of Abby Hoffman doing his, not stand-up, but his speaking and addressing crowds in a sort of stand-up-looking environment. And he's kind of narrating what's happening. And all these things, all these different tools are building the story in the best possible way so that the climactic things are all happening at the end. The climactic scenes of the riot are feeding into the climactic scenes in the courtroom, which are going to lead to the final verdict and... Again, because I I walked in not knowing much about this at all historically, uh, 
I don't even know how historically accurate it is. So that's not something I'm going to comment on, how well Sorkin captured what really happened. It's sort of like the Steve Jobs movie to me, or even Moneyball, or even The Social Network. I mean, all these historical dramas that Sorkin's become known for and done so well, it doesn't even bother me if they're not terribly accurate. If I hear about, well, the Mark Zuckerberg and Social Network isn't really like the real Mark Zuckerberg, I don't care, because the movie Mark Zuckerberg is fascinating to watch. And I don't care if Steve Jobs, like, all these things didn't happen like it's shown in the movie where every problem anybody ever had comes up right before the launch of a product uh, in this three-act sort of play because that's not what it was supposed to be. It was supposed to meant to capture the sort of persona of the guy. It was meant to capture his essence, and that I think it did a good job. Not even knowing Steve Jobs or if it was accurate, but I just feel like it captured something that was really fascinating, and that's what happened with this movie. I don't know if it captured what really happened. It's certainly believable. Nothing about it seems like it couldn't have happened. And so uh, I know a lot of it is going to be... Uh, a lot of the information of what did happen is available to people. And it's something I'll probably look into. I didn't want to look into before this podcast. I wanted to just talk about the movie. I'll probably look into later uh, some of the things that people say, like how well it was done, what was accurate, some of the artistic liberties that were taken. But just as a movie, this structure and the way that Sorkin put it together, it's it's over two hours long. Um, trying to think, I've got it pull up here. It's two hours and nine minutes long. Of course, so two hours because nine minutes is about credits. Two hours long, and it's a drama where it's mostly about talking, and the movie never drags. I mean, it just moves along because of the way the scenes are intercut, because of the fast dialogue. It just keeps going. And again, the fast dialogue is not even, I don't think, normal Sorkin fast. It's just good dialogue. And so it works. Uh, there are scenes of the good Sorkin dialogue, scenes where, um, for example, when uh, Thomas Hayden, the student leader, is uh, played by Eddie Redmayne, is going back and forth with his own lawyer who's prepping him for uh, his own lawyer, um, William Kunstler, who's prepping him, played by Mark Rylance very well, again, prepping him for what the other lawyers will do if he goes on stand now that they have this recording of him saying, if there's going to be blood, let it be, let there be blood all over Chicago. And this back and forth of the way that they're building this scene is fantastic and rapid-fire Sorkin. But um, it's just, man, it's really so. I wish I could write like Sorkin. I just, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Sorkin writes the way that uh, all people sound in their heads. Like, if we could speak as clearly and as smoothly as it sounds in our heads, that's the way we would talk, is the way that Sorkin writes. I do want to shout out some of the acting in this movie, because the acting is fantastic, and it's largely an acting piece. It's the type of movie I imagine actors, when they get the script, they're very excited for the possibility of doing the part. So, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, as uh, Abby Hoffman... Seemed like sort of a surprise casting because, I mean, it's the guy who does Borat, and there's literally a Borat movie coming out at the same time on Amazon Prime as this movie. And so you're getting two sides of the Sasha Baron Cohen coin where he's this outrageous, uh, eccentric character actor who does these, you know, real things where he dresses up as a character and interacts with real people and pushes the boundaries and does crazy things to entertain. And then his ability to be an actual good actor and 
seem very intelligent like he does in this movie, even though he's also very funny still as this character. Uh, Jeremy Strong as Jerry Rubin. That's uh, Abby Hoffman and Jerry are the two hippie-looking guys in the movie. Jeremy Strong is awesome. I think at some point, as a culture, we're going to start talking about Jeremy Strong as one of our best character actors. Sort of the way that um, Philip Seymour Hoffman kind of became revered right around the time he passed away and then like just sort of elevated his status and was like Philip Seymour Hoffman one of the greats and I think uh, Jeremy Strong he's going to be and he's going to be considered one of our great actors one of our great character actors um, he's just he plays such diverse characters I mean he's he plays a guy in the big short one of the brokers working uh, he's sort of the right hand man of Steve Carell's character he's just such a different character in that movie I mean he's just like strong abrasive um again broker and then he plays in uh the judge the um robert downey jr movie which wasn't a huge success but he plays his brother and he's got you know he's um got some issues in that movie he's a little mentally slow i don't i don't even know the right way to say it but he's very good in it uh so jeremy strong is a very good actor John Carroll Lynch, who plays David Dellinger, uh, he's a big bald guy who's the conscientious objector, he's very good in it. I mentioned Mark Rylance. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, really good in it, playing the prosecutor. Again, a lot of times movies like these will vilify the prosecutor. I think they did a good job making him sympathetic. They did vilify the judge, Judge Julius Hoffman, played by Frank Langella, who Frank Langella is a great actor, and uh, does a great job of making you dislike the judge that's the one where historically i'd like to know if the judge was really that foul or if the movie played it up a little bit um again a lot of this is on record so i'm sure at least some of the things are on record you know like the uh number of times that the defense attorney was um charged with contempt of court in the movie it makes it look like every time he is just justified because the court is out of line and he's rightly justly frustrated and challenges the court maybe in real life he wasn't always the calm one in that exchange you know sometimes it reminds me of uh like listening to students retell stories of arguments with their parents and when they retell the stories they're always the super calm one and the parents all emotional and out of line and i sort of roll my eyes and go yeah sure i'm sure that's how it went your parent was emotional and you were really calm and composed throughout it and that's kind of how they make it look in these movies and so maybe it was a little more balanced than that in real life i don't know maybe it wasn't like i said none of this is outside the realm of reality that it could happen um and so i don't know really interesting i'm really curious to know what other people think now like i said i'm biased towards sorkin i always love his stuff i love this one i don't know how everybody's going to receive it i already know like uh, i mean it's definitely a liberal leaning movie this is the most Sorkin movie. I mean, it really takes the things that we know he excels at. Uh, historical drama, courtrooms, politics, all those scrambled together, and you get this movie. Uh, I don't know that everybody's going to love it. Uh, my more conservative friends might be challenged to like it. But I'm just telling you, as a movie, taking politics aside, which uh, there are some interesting politics in, and some I agree with and some I don't, Taking all that aside, as a movie, I think this is a fantastic movie. Please let me know if you've watched it, what you think. Um, 
and I will see you next time.